and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor. Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric. Today we have a conversation with Joseph O'Neill, author of the short story collection Good Trouble. I wasn't in the studio for this conversation, but you and Kate both were. That's right, Eric. We missed you during that conversation with Joseph, but I was joined by Kate Wolf, an editor at large at LARB. That's going to be the other voice in that interview. So what was it like? Talking to Joseph was a lot of fun. The book is fantastic. And I've known Joseph personally sort of, you know, just a little bit over the past few years. And I was particularly excited to talk to him that week because it was the week of the most terrible news. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just, a, just a perfectly abysmal political week and though um, don't call it early it can always get true. worse it can get, yeah <laughs> i didn't think it could after yeah. the baby's crying and looking cages i thought you know this yeah. is it it's not going to get that much worse but it, it did and through the time that i've known joseph i know that he has done work for syrian refugees and, mm. and children in particular we didn't get a chance to talk about that actually during this conversation but i've always been a great admirer of his in both sort of a personal sense and as a writer. So he was fantastic to talk to. And I also later got to hear him read uh, one of the short stories at a reading and really can't recommend that story highly enough. I forget what it's called. (laughs) (laughs) But it's about a father whose son gets mugged and, and the father sort of goes into this single-minded pursuit of the robber Mm -hmm. to get Mm -hmm. the son's cell phone back and sort of just to inflict bodily harm and revenge on the attacker. And if you guys, if readers just pick up the book for just one story, I would highly recommend that one. It's really funny and very, very fantastic. And again, speaks to the political moment of the times. All right. Well, let's get to that conversation so we can hear about that story and all the others. Let's do it. Today, we have Joseph O'Neill in the studio with us. Joseph O'Neill is the author of the novels The Dog, Netherland, The Breezes, and This is the Life. His latest collection of short stories is called Good Trouble. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'd love for you to start by talking about some of the narrators in here who all, for the most part, share some characteristics, maybe could be described as a bit priggish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe they could be described. Or, or, or how would you describe them? Is that is that <laughs> wrong? I mean... I'd describe them as uh, sort of compelling sort of you know, stand-ins <laughs> for most of us. These are the sort of stories that I wrote over the last 10 years, 12 years. And so it's quite possible that I've produce these you know narrators who do have these things in common but what they really are is essentially kind of middle class people in the bourgeois sense of the word rather than the sort of pseudo working class sense of the word and confronted with the sort of various sort of miseries and predicaments of you know of that particular class and that can make them sound, I suppose, priggish in some ways, yeah. Well, they're intellectually, <laughs> I mean, they're intellectually priggish. You know, they look down on other people who don't 
necessarily, or not maybe not all of them. But I that's not, I, that's just, a, oh. I just don't think they do. Do they look down on? Do they look down on people? Well, I mean, some of them might. Say, take the first story. Yeah, you know this poet. He's offended by. Well, he's a poet. Right. He has okay. to look down on people. <laughs> well, that's, well, maybe that's should... one interpretation of being a poet. No, I mean, that's accurate, I would say, to some degree, but... Let's give listeners a quick, maybe, idea of what that first story is about, which is a poet who is teaching at a liberal arts college receives an emailed petition that is in poem form Yeah, that is also taking a political stance. And then the rest of the story is sort of a conversation between this poet and his colleague. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, there's this poet who gets this, as you say, this what's called a poetician. It's kind of a versified petition which the poets are supposed to sign Mm -hmm. demanding the release of Edward Snowden, or the pardoning, I should say, of Edward Snowden. It all takes place on the eve of the 2016 election. And, you know, this particular narrator is outraged by this, by the badness of of the writing of the petition in verse. And, you know, he feels like he doesn't know if he can put his name to this piece of writing, even though he would presumably be in favor of pardoning Edward Snowden. So maybe that is a bit... It is a bit, it is a bit ridiculous of him. I'm Absolutely, I agree. Yeah. I feel like the narrators... I mean, as you say, it's about, you know, bourgeois mores and on the other side of satire, I think, lies despair. Or mm. I found in the collection. So these yeah. are people who are not necessarily happy. So maybe there's a reason that they're priggish. They're holding to something and it's not sufficing. Priggishness, I suppose, I'm sort of actually scrambling in my mind for the exact meaning of that word but I sort of associate it with the sort of this kind of rather futile quest for accuracy or precision or getting it right or being in the right you know which is a sort of almost a sort of consumeristic pastime of the bourgeois class you know it's who's in the right who's got it right who's got the upper hand who gets to sort of be the sort of person who's correct Mm -hmm. that's a sort of one of those little things that sort of preoccupies this particular category of of society. And so I suppose it's a sort of, they often, not necessarily all of them, have sort of value, this idea that you can sort of, you know, describe the world into some sort of significance. Well, there's a story, for instance, where someone is celebrating his 40th birthday and goes to Florida, and there's a lot of emphasis on they might have, you know, gotten a cheaper experience in New York. They could have had a better time there. Maybe the trip doesn't really... And it's like this, you know, ritual for turning 40, which should mean something, but then it doesn't doesn't seem like they have such a great time. Yeah, I mean, it's four guys who decided, you know, celebrate a birthday by playing golf in Tampa, you know, which I think it does happen. And they're just sort of, yeah, they're confronted by the sort of... I mean, the, the whole idea of playing golf is itself some sort of response to, for these guys anyway, the sort of, you know... It's their idea of a, it's a sort of bourgeois response to, you know, the sort of slight dreariness of ordinary life. And they sort of have this thing that they feel very sort of, they associate this game with some sort of, you know, freedom. Just to get back to this, maybe a conversation you're not, you're not liking that much about this <laughs> prigishness or about the preoccupations of a bourgeois class. Yeah. Maybe let's put it that way. Satire. Yeah. Satire. Yeah. Do you find yourself suffering from some of these preoccupations? Oh, absolutely. And I, not only do I find myself suffering, I would be amazed if, if the two of you weren't suffering from them yeah. as well. I mean, as I sort of wrote more and more of these stories, and most of them, half of them, I think, sort of came in a flurry of anxiety that I went through in the last couple of years, along with everybody else. And half of them sort of are this kind of 
crazy and futile response to larger events in some ways, at least to the feeling of being in America at this time. I think the underestimated sort of feature of this often mocked bourgeois class is that it is in fact a revolutionary class. It is the class that is, because of its priggishness, driving forward all these ideals, unprecedented, I suppose, in Western society, of gender deconstruction, sexual deconstruction, racial reimaginings, all these kind of rather priggish sort of movements are the you know the product of this particular class and you know this often mocked class because it's there's nothing more bourgeois than mocking the bourgeois and the other dimension which i feel in retrospect really is interesting about this particular class is is that you know who's going to who's supposedly going to save us from from our current political plight they're supposed they're going to do it you know who's marching in their millions in washington they're the people doing it they're the people who are there's a sort of the mythic working class sort of thing which was so powerful and which one was so connected to in former decades is now has just gone horribly wrong. You know, the white working class supposedly is you know, the Trumpist base, for example, is the sort of authoritarian base. And it's up to the bourgeois class in alliance with, you know, certain minority interests to sort of take this job on. So we're counting on when we're talking about elections. That's so we're counting. So it's a class we're all very familiar with. And it's also a class we're almost too familiar with. If we stand back for a second, you see that the, you know that they have a, they have at this moment in history this particular kind of significance, which I, which is also pretty interesting. Something that that makes me think of is that one of the things that this, let's say, the character in that first story grapples with is the sort of absurd combination of political action and artistic production. Yeah. Right. Where a poetician, which I don't, is this a real thing? Have no, you seen I, one I of these? I don't think so. I, okay. I'd be <laughs> I would do. Um, and that connection for him seems to be particularly sort of frustrating or disturbing. Yeah. But it sounds to me as if the political is very much a part of your artistic production. Yeah. I mean, I've always, I say always, but uh, yeah, I've pretty much always thought about that sort of stuff, different subjects, depending on the book in question. I just find it very difficult to isolate a particular character and this character's particular situation from history or from society. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you start, even when I sort of looked into my, I did a family memoir, and you know it was essentially a political memoir of my grandfather's. It was about well, not just about them; it was about their worlds. So even if I'm, even if you're not dealing with that stuff expressly, you're sort of hoping to pressurize what you're writing with that stuff, so that you feel that sort of political pressure. Not that the reader will always interpret the stories in that way, but for, certainly from the writing point of view, that's at play. They're very funny stories, yeah. you know. I, and I, of course, I when I say that the characters might be priggish, I'm not trying to say that I think You're you. <laughs> sorry, sorry to go back there. You're saying I, I'm priggish, basically. What I'm you're not. Saying, I'm not trying it. to say that you are, because of course I didn't assume that you were the narrator of these stories, well, thank you. because they seem like foiled people for the most part. They yeah. don't seem to get a lot of, you know. This is a very well-written collection. I really enjoyed reading it, and I don't imagine that these narrators are writing great prose in their spare time because they maybe that would make them happier. No, no, it wouldn't. Okay. <laughs> not, not, that, not that I know about that, but no, I feel like on any given day, we sort of are 10 different people. 
we're sort of tired in the morning and fed up and sort of stupid. And then we're sort of slightly euphoric at another moment and optimistic. And another moment we're sort of, you know, in a situation we don't quite understand. And then we're, then we're with family in another situation. At work. So I do feel like, you know, they are foiled. They are thwarted. And I do feel like that's a chronic experience for most people, no matter what you're trying to do. Occasionally, things will go rather well. But then, you know... A couple of hours pass and then new things start to happen. And even if your own life might be in order, there's the rest of the world, you know. Mm-hmm. So I do feel kind of emotionally, con- I'm not going to abandon these characters <laughs> as kind of, you know, my sort of satirical playthings. I have a certain solidarity with them. Yeah, there's a story that feels less funny, more heartbreaking, which is the one called The Goose. Oh, right, yeah. Maybe you want to talk a little about that story. That's about an American guy who goes to a wedding in Italy. An old friend of his getting remarried. And he's the only person at the wedding who remembers his friend's first wife, who died. There's no trace of the first wife, who he was very friendly with, who he was good friends with. It doesn't sound, I mean, I suppose in summary, it doesn't sound very much. He goes to the wedding, he's sort of alienated the whole way through. Doesn't really know anybody there apart from his old friend. And then he sort of runs into a goose, who's the sort of, Everyone's been talking about this goose. Apparently there's a goose at the wedding. And uh, he runs into the goose at the end. And they have this sort of existential encounter, I suppose. <laughs> Are you not mentioning the cat? The, the dead cat. Also. Oh, there's a dead cat, too. You well, that's always yeah. tragic. Yeah. There's <laughs> very, also a dead cat in the very, story. Very, very sad. Uh, it's upsetting, very, it's yeah. very sad, yeah. That is actually quite sad. Yeah. It's a really heart-wrenching story. Yeah. He's depressed. There's no question this this, this character is depressed. But what else is this? Sure. What is it? He just endures like everyone else. We were speaking with another writer, Lydia Millet, yesterday, who said that she, connecting it to what you had just said about Mm. not abandoning your characters, she doesn't think of her characters as separate of herself, Mm -hmm. separate from herself, that they are products of her. They don't have a life of their own. Mm -hmm. And that sounds somewhat along the lines. Is that how you treat your work, too? That there is something, Mm. even after you are done, right, even after we, Kate and I, have the book in our hands, has a beautiful orange cover, has a cloud on it, it's lovely. But even then, is there a part of you that says, oh, this is still me? These people are not separate from me. No, no, I I mean, mean, look, if you ask me about it, then, yeah, I have a renewed sense of ownership of of the stories. But, uh, no, I mean, I actually believe that you can't, you know, that once you've written, you've had your chance to sort of direct, if that's your goal, and it isn't really mine, really, the interpretation of the book. Mm-hmm. And I have a very specific interpretation of a lot of these stories, which is very rarely you know, reflected in the interpretations I hear about, you know, because everyone reads, you know, the, the meaning of, I'm, you know, it's a formal thing, but the meaning of a book really isn't in between the covers. It really is a sort of an interactive thing the meaning of a book it all depends on this kind of voyage from the text to the person's brain which can differ and a person will read any story and and attach a different meaning to it every time so i'm fairly sort of you know if you want to see these characters as a bunch of prigs (laughs) who am i to disagree with you (laughs) Uh, so something else that this conversation made me think about is your discussion of class yeah which i think in terms of american tradition is not that strong, right? We don't really have as strong of a discussion of class as other countries might, particularly in Europe. It's embarrassing here, or has been (laughs) since. I mean, I think it was, I mean, Henry James and all these people did, obviously Edith Wharton, but you're right, in recent 
times, yeah. There's maybe a slight resurgence in terms of the prominence of Bernie Sanders and and that movement where it does seem like classes. Yeah, but even that's a very more, vexed, you know, conversation, isn't it? It is, right. And maybe perhaps because America has class divisions that are also mixed with racial divisions, right? It is not as maybe neat of a conversation here as it might be in a more homogenous country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. And also, I mean, there isn't a tradition here of thinking about the world in Marxist terms. I mean, right. you know, when I was at college, which was in England, the coal industry was owned by the government, something like by the state. The energy industry was owned by the state. The telephone company was owned by the state. I mean, there's this long statist tradition in Europe, which is born of this idea that, you know, I wouldn't say it's Marxist, but it's definitely socialist. And so that even when I hear sort of, you know, the discussion here about Bernie and, and socialism and the democratic socialists and all the rest of it, I sort of feel like this isn't even, it is, I mean, Bernie himself describes as a social democrat. He wouldn't be a, he's relatively speaking a socialist, but he's not actually one. He doesn't actually say we should nationalize AT&T, which would be a normal socialist thing to do. I mean, and a sensible thing in many ways to do, or we should sort of nationalize the sort of clean energy industry. So I think that's part, that sort of heritage of, of leftism isn't really present in this country, but you have this other very exciting, slightly chaotic kind of free market of ideas here, which has led to this, you know, slight problems at the moment. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at the KPFK studios in sunny Studio City. We've been listening to Kate and Dea's conversation with Joseph O'Neill, author of Good Trouble. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. Joanna Drucker, author of many books, most recently Downdrift and Ecofiction, she is here to give us a book recommendation. Joanna, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend Arthur Clarke's Childhood's End, one of my all-time favorite books. It happens to be a science fiction classic. Okay, tell us about the book. The book is about the transformation of human culture under the influence of an alien species. And it begins with a kind of hovering of these alien ships in the atmosphere of the Earth, and at the same time that the ships are hovering, strange patterns of behavior begin to emerge among very young children, and they start to do really strange things in their cribs and to synchronize among themselves, and the human beings start to worry about what's going on, and then the story unfolds and unfolds, and we get to see layer after layer after layer of these alien intelligences. Oh wow. Uh, okay, tell us how how did you discover the book and when did you when did you first read it? It was a favorite book of my dad. My oh, dad okay. was a science fiction fan and uh so he recommended it to me and my brother. So I read it I think in my 20s, but I don't think I fully understood it. So I reread it, you know, years later with a much greater appreciation. Mm-hmm. Sort of after the era, era of, you know, cyber science fiction emerged when Gibson started writing and we all read Neuromancer and that kind of stuff. So I like sci-fi. I mean, I especially like sci-fi movies, but I read sci-fi. 
because mm-hmm. I like the technological imagination in it. But the great thing about Clark is that, you know, it puts into perspective what does it mean to be a human, what are our limitations, and that the aliens, when they arrive on Earth, understand that the humans will not understand what they are as this advanced intelligence. So they have to present themselves to the humans who are in a state of childhood in their perception in a way that the humans can understand. And then little by little, they take over. Did you talk to your father about it after you read it? I think it was a common point of reference really? in our vocabulary um, throughout our lives. Oh, yeah. that's so interesting. Yeah, it, it kind of explains a lot about the way um, you write and think, mm-hmm. actually. It seems like you started early. So Joanna, will you tell us again the name of the book, the title of the book, and the author? Arthur C. Clarke, Childhood's End. Thank you so much. That was Joanna Drucker, author of Downdrift. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to Dea and Kate's conversation with Joseph O'Neill, author of Good Trouble. So is there a way in which your understanding of the current political moment and the way way that you write about it is inflected by not being American? I mean, though, you've lived here now for how many years? 20. Yeah, Yeah. I've now lived lived in uh, in America longer than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And Um, do you feel yourself still somewhat apart from the the political state here? No, I feel very emotionally involved. And I think that's the test. You know, I, I don't, you know, if I read about some sort of, you know, disaster somewhere else, I feel like that's somewhere else, mm-hmm. uh, even though I'm obviously interested. Um, but if I, I take it to heart here, yeah, you know, I, I'm sort of a citizen. I have children. I've got there's some very serious sort of, you know, things happening. And um, I think I take I take it to heart. I also feel like um, the sort of the American nationality is now because of because of the globalization is now almost a, a global phenomenon. I think everyone feels slightly American now. They didn't used to look, pay attention to um, American politics like they do now. And so, you know, and I think, but, but, but this specific collection of is, is sort of almost, um, is, is all about Americans. It's all about, America, mm-hmm. whereas my novels would be much more international or post-national or something. And, um, I think it started with a certain freedom of just being able to, like, if you write Irish characters or English characters, you immediately, you, I, I feel immediately bogged down by very rigid traditions, like what religion are they? In the case mm-hmm. of Ireland, what what class are they? Where did they go to school? These are sort of um, these are sort of very rigid things which can kind of end up sort of getting in your way as a as a story writer, and. Um, it's a very claustrophobic world, whereas I feel like with American characters, they're sort of more free-floating. I think American, certainly the American bourgeoisie is defined by this kind of escape from region, mm-hmm. escape from categories. That's that's a, that's a very important sort of quest for uh, American bourgeois class. I mean, I mean, even my daughter at preschool is, will talk about rejecting the binary. <laughs> really? Yeah, and that's a that's a four year old. Non-binary. Bi- being talking about non-binary, that's a right. phrase that that they talk about. In what in what sense? In the sense of boys and asking. girls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, boys and girls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, um, you know, in conversations after Philip Roth died, um, people talking about rereading his work now, and mm-hmm. what would people think now, and could they teach certain books now yeah. in universities, and. It, 
of course, I understand that discussion, but it's it's so difficult with with writers whose work you admire, maybe on a sentence and style level, but perhaps the content politically at the moment would be problematic, you know, yeah. in, in some ways. Anyways, but with that in mind, um, this book, which focuses so much on on men and men's experience, particularly white men's experience, mm-hmm. um, did you have, and with the current cultural moment, have yeah. you? Did that give you not? Of course not. You shouldn't have pause about the book coming out, but mm. these kind of concerns. Um, no, I think you're aware. Of it, but just for the record, I think there's nine stories, and three are from a feminine point of view. So it's not. Okay. It's right. not like it's just a bunch of guys. Sort of, <laughs> no, but I would. Sort of drink, you know, it's all golf. Beer. No, yeah. and they're not. Golf, not yeah. that they're you know fully yeah. entering bad guys. Necessarily, no, no, I mean, they could but, be. I mean, they could be. I mean, and, and, but I do think I do feel like there's a division of labor which is appropriate. I do feel like there's nothing wrong with. Um, you know, men writing more from a masculine standpoint. I mean, we have we have a whole um, sort of theoretical apparatus which has been built around you know the the, the female standpoint, and I suppose that's a response to the, the kind of formal idea. If you happen to be of a certain gender, you know, you will have a point of view and a set of experiences that you sort of um, know better than someone who doesn't share those um, those characteristics would have. So from that point of view, it sort of makes sense for me to write from a, um, not exclusively, but often from from there, from the point of view of someone trying to explain the masculine viewpoint. And I think that the, this idea that you, um, there's a sort of fallacy here, which I call the monopoly fallacy, which is to say you can't write as if you're the only writer in the world. Like if someone said to me, you will now monopolize the world literature, I would feel obliged in that case, since <laughs> mine would be the only book, to write from the female point of view, because right. that has to be represented. Right. Right. But thankfully, right. I write, as as women write, in the knowledge that there are other people writing about other stuff. Mm-hmm. So I can do my stuff, and they can do their stuff. And, you know, books eventually belong to a library. They, they live alongside each other, and they're in conversation with each other. Mm-hmm. So I feel like... Um, you know, there's that. So the form, from a formal point of view, it would be sort of, um, yeah, you can't, you have to just follow your deepest preoccupations and that will often reflect your gender, not exclusively, but it often will. And it should in a way, it should do that. And then there's a separate issue, which is, you know, the question of well, what do we value at a given point in in our culture. And I think the argument against Philip Rotten, if it's, if it's, a, if it's a sort of relatively sound argument, isn't necessarily that he's a bad writer. No, no, but not at all. But maybe that, I mean, I think the argument is, would be that, um, you know, it, again, it's, it's a slight monopoly thing, but but not but less so. If you've only got three hours a week to read, maybe you should think about reading somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of, uh, sort of argument, I guess, which is being made. You know, you've only got a finite amount of time to read, and maybe we already, we're sufficiently aware of certain things to sort of to sort of have new things. But, you know, the thing about Philip Roth in particular is that it can't be forgotten that when he started writing, he had to fight for his space. He was a Jewish writer. There was there was no space for, for, for that sort of writing. He and a couple of others, Malamud and Bello, kind of broke down all sorts of barriers themselves and also brought introduced, uh, certainly in the case of Philip Roth, a kind of explicit frankness which paved the way for sort of writers of every, all sorts of writers to write. He kind of, hmm. he and a few others. 
Is he a, is he a writer that you have any relationship with or a strong relationship with in terms of someone you Yeah, I, do. I definitely do. I do. I, feel, I mean, he's one of those writers who, I st- well, if I pick up his books, I actually keep reading. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, he's that good. He will just keep you reading. And I may not sort of, you know, you know, necessarily look thing it's you know elevated to the, to the sort of the, it's not a life changing experience necessarily but it, you know there are lots of kind of writers who are sort of more I suppose uh, you know writing about other stuff who I wouldn't can't can't read more than five sentences of because you know so he's so he's artistically very very strong yeah. I mean there yeah. were certain of his books which are which don't make sense at all but um, you know that's that's fine he's written forty books. Right. Yeah. Well, the thing that that occurs to me when you talk about that is I, I, a long time ago, I went to a talk by um, the philosopher Peter Singer mm-hmm. and a question. And you know, Peter Singer is a, an advocate of animal rights. And a question that was raised during that conversation was, well, don't we have more important things to worry about? Don't yeah. we have more important? Um, don't we have humans, right, who, who lack the rights that they should have? Mm-hmm. And, and then we should turn our attention to animals. Mm-hmm. And he had a very sensible answer, I thought, which was, we can do both at once, right? That the human, that the human attention span is not infinite, of course, but that it can handle multiple sort of goals and multiple interests at the same time. Yeah, which I think sort of applies to the answer that you gave here, right? Of course, that one can read Philip Roth, and one can also read someone else. Yeah, and as I do, as you do, right? <laughs> and as a, as a person might, yeah, and so exactly, yeah. and so, it's not necessarily I mean, yeah. a, a a choice that obfuscates the other. Yeah, I mean, I you know, you know, it's quite easy to read Philip Roth and then read Susan Bordeaux or somebody. Yeah. On the same day, and in fact, that's how writing is supposed to work. Um, and that's the, part of the magic of it is that you it can do so many things that you can read Tintin, and then you can read something else. But uh, yeah, well, that Peter Singer thing is interesting for all sorts of reasons. But anyway, we can't. I don't want to get sidetracked into animal rights. <laughs> <laughs> well, something I wanted to ask you was um, how you uh, came to be a writer. And maybe just also broadly about you, you had, men- you had mentioned some of your other books being sort of yeah. global or post-national, maybe. Yeah, but well, that, that's down the road. That's after doing it for, for a long time. Yeah. Um, I, I think like, like a lot of people, I came to be a writer because I had a, a private relationship with pages. And I spent a lot of my time as a, as a kid just reading. And you grew up in Ireland. Is that no, right? I grew up in Holland. You grew up in Holland. I grew up in Holland, yeah. I was a sort of strange sort of um my my father's irish i was born in ireland but my i grew up mainly in holland and um my mother's turkish mm-hmm. and so but we had english language and french language books in the house my mother's first language is french and so i'd be reading all this stuff and at a certain point i suppose in fact i very much very remember i very clearly remember when i went from just being a kind of oh, yeah you know julius caesar yeah <laughs> sort of, you know, sort of. Do I have to write that essay, <laughs> reader? To being someone who's, who was sort of a, suddenly. A, I mean, it really was like crossing into a into a different sort of world. When I read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, really, and yeah, and then I sort of read that, and I suddenly was just like, hold on a moment. I just could feel the. I was sixteen years old. I could feel. It, I think it's the ear. I became aware of language as this kind of visual strange visual thing i'm very visual with words i don't really hear them i just see them and i sort of saw uh, this thing this uh, and, and and i and from that moment it really was like in a like a sort of you know <laughs> pauline experience um uh, I, I i started writing and i started writing poems mm-hmm. and that's what i wrote for the first few years 
Can you describe that that moment? Where were where were you? What were well, was I, there was there a point in in the book yeah, where you suddenly yeah, was, had and this? And this is this is going to sound terrible, but there was that point where he's uh, Stephen Dedalus is wandering around at, at school, and he can hear the the plink and the pick and the pock of the cricket bats in the background, and that's my that was that's a sport I played very obsessively and comprehensively, you know, sensuous. I had a very sensuous a relationship with the, with the sport, and I suddenly felt connected to something which was describing this realm of feeling which I hadn't really seen described before. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, part of the problem about being a 16-year-old and, in fact, being a 25-year-old is that you just don't understand what you're reading. So that even though I love Saul Bellow, I just had no... I, I now see I had no idea mm-hmm. what he was talking about. So so what but what you are receptive to as a, as a young reader and writer is is language, so that even if you don't quite understand or you know, the, all the sort of psychological dimensions of what you're reading, you do see that the words look weird on the page. And of course, that book does that right from the beginning. It's sort of, uh, because it's written in a sort of baby language at the beginning, it sort of alerts you to, so it puts you on red alert that something with the language is happening. And then it sort of delivers for the rest of the book. Now, these stories in, in Good Trouble are relatively realist. Mm-hmm. Right. Did you experiment as a young writer? Did you write experimental poetry? That's something that played around more with how the words on the page looked and how yeah. how they sounded. Well, yeah, you did that. I had I yeah. lots of bad poems. If you're asking. <laughs> lots of poems with sort of Charles Olson and like sort of scatterings. I wasn't quite sure. Again, I was looking at them, and I don't even know if um, I wasn't quite sure what that was about or why ampersands are used in poems. But I would. I would roll them out. I would use an ampersand. <laughs> I could see that others were doing it. And I could, so I did all of that. But I always feel, I feel like every sentence I write feels experimental to me. It doesn't sort of feel like, as soon as a sentence or, 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 or a movement in a paragraph or a movement sentence feels safe, um, then I sort of feel like it's, it's, it's lost its edge. Mm-hmm. And it's not just sentences. It's also transitions and structures. So that... I might have done that in my first two novels, done certain things which I wouldn't do now, just so that it's so that the deep logic is also slightly unexpected or or dreamy. Even as the sentences themselves remain lucid, so you understand the sentence, but you cease to understand exactly what's going on. Mm. That's the sort of thing. Mm. The sentences in this in this book are beautifully. Oh, written. they're perfect. I'm, and I think that some of them are <laughs> are strange. The stories are strange as well. You referenced that. Some people are, miss what these stories are no, actually about. I wondered if there is a story in particular that we haven't discussed that that you could tell us, you know, what you were aiming for. Just something that we might have not touched on in the book. Well, that, as I said, I don't. Um, there's all sorts of. Um, there's one story, and I'm not referring to you guys in particular. There's one story which um, I don't think anyone has has sort of met with a sort of deathly silence, and that's a story called The Mustache in 2010. Um, which it starts off as this sort of reminiscence about, you know, the beard craze and the sort of facial hair craze of the last five, 10 years, I guess, 15 years. And it sort of devolves into a story about... A, about a, 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 and it's told from a... By, we later learn. And I just stole this from Chiva. Which it, sound, it feels like a third-person story for six pages, and then suddenly I appears. Mm-hmm. And that was just sheer theft. And then it turns out that the person telling the story is a woman. 
and she's talking about, she's telling us she's remembering something that happened a few years ago about a guy who was in the habit of shaving and then just leaving himself this residual little Hitler moustache <laughs> and it would sort of freak the hell out of his you know wife and, and, and you know it was freakish and um, and then it goes on to something else but essentially uh, and now that story she remembers that story and she remembers the characters involved and it just feels very resonant for her and it's about and it sort of it, it sort of corresponds to it's and then she looks she's with her and then she ends she ends the story in looking out the window in tears as she tries to come to terms with and we've all you know with history and with the past and trying to relate it to where she is now and it's to, to me when i was writing it, it felt very clear that that corresponded to that feeling that there what finally that this famous history that we've read about finally it's here now mm-hmm. it's right here this is it and it's scary and you feel helpless yeah what a um, beautiful and perfect place to end on thank you so much joseph for coming in and for talking to us my pleasure thank you that was joseph o'neill author of good trouble a collection of short stories You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 